I will feast at the table of the Lord. I will feast at the table of the Lord. I won't hunger anymore. Welcome to the table. You are listening to the Kingstown Communion podcast with lead pastor Michelle Matthews. The Kingstown Communion is a new United Methodist Church existing to gather people into communion with Jesus Christ through courageous conversation, creative community, and collaborating for the common good. We worship at Island Creek Elementary School, 7855 Morning View Lane, every Sunday at 10 a.m. For more information about upcoming events and opportunities to serve, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Kingstown Communion. We're glad that you're listening along with us. If you live close by, we hope you'll join us for worship in person. And if you ever feel so inclined to help us by giving financially, you can do so on our website, kingstowncommunion.net. sleep 
For salvation is nearer to us now than when we became believers. The night is foregone, the day is near. Let us then lay aside the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us live honorably as in the day, not in reveling and drunkenness, not in debauchery and licentiousness, not in quarreling and jealousy. Instead, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. If we turn off the light, I'd like you to watch a little video. I think this is just serendipitous that this came out this week. Um, so my, like I told you, my friend Char um, uh, Charlie Baber, oh, darn it. Um, my, um, my friend Charlie Baber is, um, is a comic, um, comic, what is it, what do they call those? Comics? Cartoonists, thank you, oh gosh. So comic is people who make, yeah, do, do funny things. All right, so he is a cartoonist and, uh, and he, they finally this week put his cartoons um, to video. And so I wanted to just show you in three minutes, this is not counted in my 20 minute sermon. <laughs> you cannot time me on this, okay? But um, I'm gonna show you in three minutes his version of the history of John Wesley. Hey brother, what are you up to? Taking it to the streets or screens, submitting to be more vile. These days it's viral. Ah, trying to pick an Instagram name because you know the World Wide Web is my parish. Oh, that's easy, Bible Moth. You mean the nickname people used to call us at college because they thought we studied scripture too much? Yeah, that's right. Or sacramentarians because we like to take communion frequently. Like that's a bad thing. Those early days of the movement were great. I love seeing the folks from the Holy Club on our Facebook page and to see how far they spread the word past Oxford in England. To think, we started so many years ago and our method of fasting and spiritual practices that gave us the name Methodists is still part of our identity. Going with Bible moths. Now for a good avatar. Hmm. <laughs> hey brother, let's see how smart this phone is. I was plucked from the burning, and here's my burning question. Susanna, tell me about the United Methodist Church today. The United Methodist Church has nearly 7 million members in the U.S. and more than 5 million members in Africa, Asia, and Europe. Nice! Hosanna, how many United Methodist Churches are there worldwide? In 2016, there were more than 44,000 churches across the globe. Okay, let's really stump her. Rihanna, what does the cross and the flame mean on all those church signs? The flame is a reminder of Pentecost. The two tongues represent the Evangelical United Brethren Church and the Methodist Church, which formed the United Methodist Church in 1968. I've got one. Mariah, what Methodist made history in music? Charles Wesley wrote more than 6,000 hymns. Among them, Hark the Herald Angels Sing and Christ the Lord is Risen Today. Ariana, could you sing a bit of it? Christ the Lord is Risen Today. Hallelujah. <laughs> we need to get our saddlebags in gear. I wish we could find a Twitter handle related to our roots. Remember that movie that showed how circuit riders helped spread the church across the United States? Mariana, play Clay Ride. Here's a clip from Clay Ride. Now we have our bus in the <laughs> Ah, yes. I like to think about how we fight 
but we come together because we want the same thing. How we worked to end slavery and support workers. How we included women and stood for social justice and cared for creation. Responded to disasters and worked for reconciliation when we hurt people of color. We went from being a holy club in England to being a global movement. And you can see some of our social holiness on social media. And whether we carry a phone or a flood bucket or a holy Bible, we can still be the hands and feet of Christ. And be part of a network that's stronger than any digital platform. True. And we didn't even talk about all the potluck recipes we could put on Pinterest. Maybe later, Charles. <laughs> like I said, I think it's serendipitous. Why did John Wesley say submitting to be more vile? What Methodist nicknames do you like that? That's kind of these are kind of silly, but um, as if none of it's yeah, all of it's silly. Well, uh, I'm going to get ready, and you're going to time me. Are you going to time? Are you timing me? We're timing you. <laughs> they, so I don't know if anybody read. I said that if, if I go over 20 minutes. Um, Your cake. Uh, no, I said, I said I would dye my hair any color of the congregation's choosing. So, <laughs> all right. Lots of amens, everybody. <laughs> Should we ask and questions? How many no, oh, no, not yet. Questions. Huh? We'll ask questions. No, no, no. I'm not doing that either. All right. No testimony. No, this is when I say go. <laughs> All right, and I'm watching this clock here. I'm going to have to keep my my eyes. All right. All right. So John Wesley was the founder of the Methodist movement in the 18th century, and I'm not going to go that fast. I promise. We don't worship him. We don't worship him as a community. If that's a question, please no. No, we do not worship him. We don't think he's the holiest person that ever lived, because you will realize that he's not. We just know him as a man who sparked a revival. Now, the very idea of revival um, kind of assumes that there are times in life and in society, in the church, when vitality leaks from something. And that's where John Wesley started. The revival lasted for about 180 years. For 180 years, Methodism was growing in America. There were 50, um, for there was a 50-year stretch of time when a new church was started every single day in America. But last year, we closed one church a day in the United Methodist Church. And the year before, we closed one church a day. And the year before that, we closed one church a day. Something happened to us. It happened in Wesley's age, and it happens for us. And my goal today is that, that we dig for the next... 18 minutes into the life and times of John Wesley, and that our hearts and minds might be revitalized by it too. So let's start at the very beginning. 200 years before John Wesley was a time of religious upheaval in England. Remember Henry, King Henry VIII? The Protestant Reformation was happening on the continent of Europe, but not, was not yet happening in England. Uh, and King Henry VIII requests from the Pope that he get an annulment because his wife does not provide him male heirs. And of course, the Pope said no. So he says, well, you know, we were gonna settle this. You're not gonna be in charge of me anymore. And so England becomes Protestant. A little while later, King Henry dies. His son Edward takes the throne. He's a kind of sickly man. And he took the Church of England even further into the Reformation. And then he dies because he's sickly, and Mary comes along. Mary, does anybody know what 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 she was called? Bloody Mary. Bloody Mary. Bloody Mary. Thank you. 
So, <laughs> yeah, so uh, Edward's half-sister, Mary, comes along. She's a staunch Catholic. And she says, we're going to be Catholic again. And then she says, I'm going to burn you at the stake if you don't reinstitute the monasteries, if you don't reinstitute the nunneries. And so she burns as this witness all of these Church of England archbishops um, just to show that she has power. After Mary, there's Elizabeth who says, you know, we're going to go back to being Anglican again. <laughs> we'll leave the Pope alive. And so they turned back to the Church of England, and this was the 1500s, and this was a period of great religious upheaval. Blood was shed during this, this, this century, and you can just see, it's just flip-flopping. The entire century, flip-flopping from Protestant to Catholic, from Protestant to Catholic. And then, then there was the 1600s, which brought a different kind of dynamic to it. There were high church Anglicans, and there were Puritans, and the Puritans thought that the Anglicans were too Catholic, and they thought that they needed to reform the church by being more un-Catholic, and so there's a British civil war that breaks out in the 1600s. Then the Puritans come to power, and they said, we're not going to do things like the Anglo-Catholics anymore, we're going to do things a little more pure, a little more holy, and then after 10 years of them being in power, the Anglo-Catholics come back into power in this century again. They beheaded the king, got rid of the monastery, um, the monarchy altogether, and, and then, then they brought back the king. And it, it's this flip-flopping over and over again throughout the, the 1500s and the 1600s. So John Wesley had a response to this. He was born in 1703 to, grant, to a family in which his grandparents were devout Puritans and his parents were devout Anglicans, and his grandparents had been thrown out of their churches because of, of not wanting to use the Book of Common Prayer, and his parents embraced the Book of Common Prayer, and what Wesley intuitively figured out was that perhaps, just perhaps, the Puritans had something to say that was worthy. And perhaps, just perhaps, the Church of England had something to say that was worthy. And maybe if we brought these two things together, we would have a stronger faith than if we built walls and we separated ourselves. And so much of his ministry began with this idea that if you love Jesus and I love Jesus, it doesn't quite matter whether you sprinkle or dunk. If you love Jesus and I love Jesus, if you don't want to be all reverent in front of bishops, if you don't even like the idea of bishops, it's fine. This is what began to bring people back to faith. And so this revival breaks out. And here's what John Wesley said. Would to God that all the party names and unscripted phrases and forms which have divided the Christian world were forgot, and that we might all agree to sit down together as humble, loving disciples at the feet of our common master to hear his word, to imbibe his spirit, to transform this world. Or another way to say it is, though we cannot think alike, may we love alike. And this here lies the first point about Methodism. We call it the via media. Methodism exists in this middle way. Wherever there is a middle way, we try to take that path. Submitting to be more vile, as Wesley would call it, through taking the middle way. John Wesley grew up among 15 other children under a father who was a priest, and he followed his father into ministry. So he goes to Oxford. This is the second part of John Wesley's life we're going to focus on. He goes to Oxford, and 
He's there for his bachelor's degree, and then he stays for his master's degree, and um, between the two, he becomes ordained as a priest in the Church of England, and he, he is elected as a fellow at Lincoln College at Oxford to be a fellow um, member of the faculty there, to be a professor. He was an instructor of Greek and philosophy. He was meant to tutor students, but in tutoring students, he also became their spiritual advisor as well. And so there became this integration of spirituality and the intellectual. Have you ever seen a revivalist that has a PhD? Usually when you think of revivals, you think of tent revivals across America, you think of fiery preachers, but you don't usually think of them as professors at Oxford and Harvard and Cambridge. Maybe they went to school, maybe they didn't. It's not that big of a deal, right? But Wesley was a professor which points to something really important for us, and thing number two, the integration of the intellect and the heart is the second thing I want you to remember about Methodists. We are the denomination that takes the middle way, the via media, almost every issue that exists, and we are also the place that, that aims to integrate our mind and our heart. So like things like the earth was created 6,000 years ago. We're able to say, that makes no sense. Reason says that makes no sense. But we believe in the truth of the Genesis passage. Or things like, in that passage, <laughs> the, somehow the, the sun is created after the plants. Well, we know, science tells us, that's not possible. How does the plant live without the sun to make it happen. And so we begin to kind of dissect these things and say, we are able to hold two together. We're able to be intellectuals and be people of faith. This is the idea that God gave you a brain and you're meant to check, you're not meant to check it at the door, you're meant to bring it with you, to, to, to interact with your brain when you come to worship. But at the same time, same time as he's their professor, he was also their spiritual advisor. And so there was this revival happening between the head and the heart. He's leading passionate revivals, preaching with zeal, beckoning people to turn their lives toward God and see their lives transformed. And he starts it in small groups called Holy Clubs, which is by far the worst name for a small group ever. But in these groups, he would not only check their papers, he would ask them, how is it with your soul? How is God enlightening you about God's word? How is your prayer life today? Your intellect and your heart, the integration of heart and head. So Wesley was teaching people, helping them grow in love of God and heart and head at Oxford, and he gathered these small groups together, and they were, they were not the popular kids in school. <laughs> in fact, they were called Bible moths, remember? Because, let's be honest, it's the same in secular universities and, and Christian and seminaries today where we emphasize way, way more the head than the heart anymore. And that's what was happening there. They like to say that they were about spirituality and intellectual pursuit, but really all that was left at Oxford was intellectual pursuit. And so when they were reading the Bible every day, it seemed like they were zealots, overzealous, and they got joked for it. They also created this really methodical way of gathering people together to say, okay, this week we're going to meet at this time, and then you're going to go home and you are going to fast two days a week. 
You are going to pray every single morning and every single evening before you go to bed. You, you're, going to, um, you're going to engage in social justice on Thursday at this place. You're going to serve the poor um, a meal on Friday together with us here. And there's this method. And every week it was the same thing over and over again. And this is where this word Methodist comes from. And this small group of Anglicans with John Wesley were striving for holiness in everything they were. Striving to give God glory in everything they had. But then there was a problem with the incredibly methodical approach to this, these high standards that Wesley had for everybody. Wesley began to see how all of these spiritual disciplines and this rhythm of life seemed to be missing something. Wesley became obsessed with this way of being. At one point, he said he slept naked on the floor of his prayer room night after night because he thought that God wanted to break him of his sin. He wouldn't get his hair cut at the barber in order that he might give all the money to the poor. Um, so he just looked like this like homeless man walking around. Um, I mean, like it looked like he had not shaved. He had not. He was he was not taking care of himself. He was not healthy anymore. And this kind of obsession among revivalists. Um, that is pretty normal. Apostle Paul did it too. Um, he was a Pharisee first until he realized something. He began to realize this crazy realization that something was missing. And he has this out-of-body experience. Wesley, this priest, this teacher of the scriptures, this man seeking desperately to win God's favor, who's doing everything right. He's the one that's called the zealot on campus. At one point along the journey, he writes, I've been charged with being too strict with laying burdens on myself and others that were neither necessary nor, nor possible to even bear. He writes later about how on the road to, to Aldersgate, this word Aldersgate comes in, he writes about this crisis of faith he has, where this man who has been teaching faith, <laughs> who has been leading people in spiritual disciplines for the very first time in his life, comes face-to-face -face with the grace of God. It's like he says his heart is just taken over with warmth. His body from his head to his feet feel, feels the, the warmth of God. And he says, it's grace. This thing's a gift. He's amazed, waking up overnight to know all this work I've been doing, all these ways I've been trying to earn, earn God's favor. It's grace, and this grace is a gift to me before I before I ever, ever earn it, before I do anything. It's not earned. It's a gift, a free gift from God, from God's love. And so he has this miraculous experience. In front of you, you have a, a piece of paper um, where it's an outline of, uh, let me see if I can get a piece. You can hold that one. I'll get this one. Um, so it's an outline of, of the way John Wesley begins to think about salvation. That there is Praveni, it's this one right here, the road trip. That there's prevenient grace. Prevenient grace is the grace that goes before you have ever, ever even known God. He says, in his ministry, he witnessed over and over and over again how people just seem to be full of God's grace, full of God's grace, and, and, and they didn't even recognize that Jesus was Lord. They weren't speaking it. They weren't living their lives at all. So what in the world am I doing? And all these little groups gathering all these people together to pray when it seems like there's all these other people that also seem to be encountering God's grace who, who aren't doing these things. So he says that God's grace comes before us and, and that, we, we, that there is original sin, but the grace of God 
completely wipes that away. That we are born into this grace of God that just overwhelms our lives, that pursues us to no end. And so your friend or your, um, your, your mother or your father who wants nothing to do with God, grace is still incredibly alive in their life. It's this provenient grace. And then Wesley talks about the grace that Paul talks about a lot, this justifying grace. He had very real experiences of turning towards God. Wesley would say that all he, though he was teaching and he was doing all those spiritual disciplines, he was still just in this provenient grace period because he had not fully come to know the love and grace of God so that it just overwhelmed his whole being. And so this justifying grace moment on the road to Aldersgate where he, where he says, I, I realize how much God loved me. And that was just, a, it's just such a, an eye-opening experience for him. So justifying grace is, is, that, is that place in your life when, when you decide to turn towards God and you realize how profound God's love is for you. And then Wesley talks about the third thing, the sanctifying grace piece. That means the coming back here every week. That does mean the returning to this lifestyle of praying, of serving your neighbor, of, um, of advocating for those who can't advocate for themselves, of reading your Bible, of gathering in community, all of these things are a part of that sanctifying life, but that grace is not this one-time thing. Salvation is not this one-time thing. He notices these various stages in his own life. And so the third thing to know about the Methodist faith, via media, intellect and heart, grace upon grace. After he realizes this grace upon grace thing, though, Wesley also realizes it's not enough. We can't completely turn towards grace in, in, immeasurably without asking anything of anyone. And so Wesley moves into this season where he calls it the perfecting yourself in love. So we as Methodists, we talk about moving on to perfection, which is a very interesting thing to say. No other faith uses this language. We say we're moving on to perfection. We believe you, we can be perfected in love in this lifetime. But it's not something that you get when you go off to heaven. But you can be perfected in love in this lifetime. And that looks like a variety of things. That looks like attending to the means of grace in your life. So personal piety. How is it with your soul? How is it with your heart? Are you praying? Are you reading, are you reading scripture? Are you growing in love? of God, but then the turning into the social piety. As you heard on that video, that video the Methodist church has always been, always been um, speaking out for those who do not speak out for themselves, um, always making room for those who aren't at the table. And so um, it's a part of our DNA. We have a, a book of social principles. I would be happy to show it to you anytime, but we have a book of social principles where we say this is what we believe here. We're not telling you this is what we believe about uh, abortion. This is what we believe about um, capital punishment. This is what we believe about immigration. We have a book of social principles that says exactly what we believe based on our interpretation of scripture and our duty as Christians to be socially aware and to advocate for those who can't advocate for themselves. And so, um, but guess what? We're the middle way. So if you were to read our book of social principles, we are incredibly pro-life. You can't be, you can't be a, a Christian without valuing life. 
So it talks about it, and we talk about being pro-life. We're pro, but when we say pro-life, it's incredibly holistic, right? It's incredibly holistic because you can't be pro-life for a child and not pro-immigrant and pro-refugee. If we believe in life as it's so, we also so we're pro-life, but we're also marching <laughs> when we see something wrong, right? We're marching when families are separated. This has been the way the Methodist Church has functioned since its beginning. Submitting to be more vile. Submitting to be more vile through taking the middle way. Being the place where tradition and innovation meet one another. Being the place where contemporary and, um, and tradition meet one another. This is, the place, this is what we do here. Being the place where grace and responsibility meet one another. Mixing our intellect and our heart. <coughs> always choosing both. And... Grace upon grace, preaching it until we get sick of it, and then growing in perfection so that we are the people that embodies the kingdom of God for the world. That's what it means to be a Methodist. Am I over? 30 seconds. Yes! <laughs> so in 10 seconds, I'm going to add, I wonder today, this not counted in my... <laughs> um, I wonder today, I wonder today which part of that you are connecting with. I wonder which part you're connecting with. Something in your mind is connecting and clicking with that today. Perhaps you've been looking for a church that finally engages your intellect. Maybe. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe, maybe you're tired of, of churches that try to make you cry and try to get some kind of emotional response out of you. Um, but you're ready, to, you're ready to learn something, right? Maybe that's where it is. Maybe you need to remember the grace of God in your life because you've been trying to earn God's favor for way too long. Maybe you've been looking for a place that mixes tradition and innovation, which is what we do here. We're reading words from the 1700s in an elementary school <laughs> for a church that does pop-up worship all around. You know, like it, it is a place, it's a, this really bizarre middle way place, right? And, and we're people who are being perfected in love. And maybe you're wanting to be more perfected in love. Maybe you get God's grace, but you want to join a common table so that you can grow with other people in your faith. I wonder where you are connecting, which one of those is helping you connect today. You're definitely over. <laughs> that was that was my that's called the um the epilogue. Yes. It's not the sermon. <laughs> um sorry. Seafoam green. That's right. Unicorn. We have to vote. Seafoam okay, whatever. <laughs> Would you join me now in prayer? We're gonna pray John Wesley's covenant prayer together. God, I am no longer my own, but thine. Put me to what thou wilt, rank me with whom thou wilt, put me to doing, put me to suffering. Let me be employed for thee or laid aside for thee, exalted for thee or brought low for thee. Let me be full, let me be empty, let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thou art mine and I am thine, so be it. And the covenant which has been made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven through your Son, Jesus, who taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you.